0: Ever since I began teaching here a few weeks ago, I've been coming back to this phrase again and again of uh, simply your willingness to be present and sharing that that's so much of the heart of what we're doing here is just that willingness, the willingness to be present, which again, I like because I don't have to be present, I just have to have the willingness and then the mind will do what it does. And I have this willingness to be present uh, in order to see clearly. This is Vipassana, to, to, to see through, to see uh, a special kind of scene or to see clearly. And it's that scene that frees the heart and mind. That's why I, I love that uh, title of Robert Bayer's book. It's, it's the scene that frees. All, it's, it's all I need is just the scene, the scene clearly experience. And what I notice is that this uh, scene that frees this heart and mind, um, it's not only on this individual level, but uh, what I realize is that it's it's intertwined. It has this 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 wholesome impact in, uh, on in terms of the society we find ourselves thrown into. And when I read the the Pali discourses, the the teachings of you could say the Buddha uh, in early Buddhism, I feel like he's also alluding to this uh, quite often, especially when I read about his critique, his critique of the society that he was living in and his views on it. For example, what you'll find is there are a number of instances in the Pali discourses where some Brahmin or a group of Brahmins come to the Buddha and ask him, ask him what he thinks about this Brahminical social system or societal system, which was this system where the Brahmins were seen to be better than, to be seen, seen to be the superior ones, and everyone else inferior, kind of divided mostly into these four classes. And it was a, a system mostly based on uh, the family you were born into. So it was the family that you were born into that for the most part would determine where you were in that, in that order of things. And what the Buddha was trying to emphasize was that just because someone was born into a certain family doesn't make them better than others. Really calling into question this societal dynamic of better than and less than. For example, in, in one of the discourses, uh, a Brahmin asked him about this idea that uh, he's kind of telling him, listen, you know, Brahmins are born from the mouth, the mouth of God, the mouth of Brahma, that's why they are superior. And uh, the Buddha says, yeah, but actually just to be honest with you, I've I've seen Brahmins born from the womb of a mother. I've actually seen this, (laughs) so I'm not buying it. (laughs) They're born just like everyone else. I haven't seen them born in a different way from other people. Just the same in that way. Not a better than in terms of this story that you're giving to me. And uh, in the, uh, in another Sutta, the uh, Vasetta Sutta in the Sutta Napata, the Buddha gives another helpful explanation around this, around trying to counter this, this dynamic of the societal better than and less than. <clears throat> He says it's it's kind of like when you look at animals, like if you look at animals, you can distinguish them by their colors and their markings on their body. That's what makes these animals different. But but you can't look at human beings and look at their their, their different colors and their markings on their bodies and say that this one is better than that one. It doesn't work that way. And he takes it even farther in another discourse. Where he asks uh, the Brahmins, basically, you have this societal system that you are superior, but does everyone consent to this? Do others consent to this societal system that you've uh, brought up? And even further, he says, you know, if if there's some kind of societal hierarchy where one person serves. Another person ends up better off in their life, ah, then that is a wholesome system. But if, if one person serves another person and ends up worse off, that is an oppressive system. So you can hear this has uh, societal implications, not only societal implications, economic implications in terms of, of the kinds of systems. That we find around us and the reason i share these things from the early discourses with you because it's, it's because i think it, it points to a a particular dynamic in the mind that that we can begin to notice that we begi- can begin to see on retreat right here at the forest refuge And it's this dynamic that's called mana, or conceit, or the comparing mind. And conceit can be a misleading term, because often, sometimes when we hear this word conceit, we think it's when I have the sense that I have a feeling of being better than others. Yet the way the Buddha used it was, he mentioned that it's not only when I feel like I'm better than it's also when I feel like I'm less than others. Or even when I feel like I'm equal to them. It's when I'm hooked by a mind that's lost in comparing. And especially with this better than and less than, we, 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 we see the Buddha taking issue with a, with a kind of society and economic system that's based on conceit. so interesting that here at the forest refuge, we can look at these minds, we can examine these minds and see that it also has an impact for the world that we live in. And as I mentioned in an earlier talk, these dynamics that happen in our society happen in our mind. And I shared with you this quote from Krishnamurti that I I feel so accurately points to this. He says, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is because your mind is a part of society. It is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do, and what you think, society is made up of all of this. It is the replica of what is going on in your own mind. So your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from your culture, from your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. All of this is society. And this, this is your mind. It's all society and, and we can see this particular flavor which I think is so important to see. The mind of conceit, the comparing mind, these dynamics of better than, less than, and equal to. And also in the Pali discourses, the Buddha gives us an image of a different kind of society, a different kind of living together, which I think is really quite striking and beautiful, which I'll, I'll, I, I want to come back to again and again. And we we hear this, um, this description given when uh, uh, the Buddha goes and visits these three monastics living together, the Venerable Anuruddha. The Venerable Nandiya and uh, the Venerable Kambila. And the Buddha visits them and, and basically says to uh, Anaruda, So, how do you live? How, how, how are things going? How are you living together? And the Venerable Anuruddha uh, replies to him He says, Venerable, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. And in this context, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. And I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. We are different in body, but one in mind. That is how, Venerable Sir, we are living in Concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. This blending of milk and water, two different substances, yet blending, through, through kindness, through loving kindness, mental, verbal, and bodily acts of loving kindness. And I find this a helpful thing to remember just when I'm on retreat, just to be a member of a retreat And what I like to point out when we're on retreat, especially in a place like Forest Refuge, it can be forgotten that actually this retreat that you're on, it's happening in a relational context, not in an individual context. So sometimes when we come on retreat, it can feel like, well, I'm going to just come on retreat and I'm going to be on my own retreat in the midst of these other people. But then it denies this dynamic that we're here as a group relationally. Something so sweet and so powerful about that. And again, reminds me of this importance of holding this, at least in my heart, this quality of kindness. So back to conceit, back to this dynamic of mana, of the comparing mind. And I just want to share with you kind of a very small slice of this dynamic of the comparing mind that uh, you might be able to see here on, on retreat, right here at the Forest Refuge, and hear the resonances that it will have for also the society that we live in. And so I just want to give a few examples of this just around the body and having a body. And you might be able to relate to some of these uh, more than others. And how this can arise. So, for example, you know, here's this body, maybe I'll call it my body, that's sitting in the meditation hall here amongst other bodies. And maybe it's one of those mornings or afternoons or evenings where it just feels like this body is squirming or agitated or restless. It's kind of moving around. Or maybe there's a lot of sleepiness and it's bobbing. And of course, there's states of mind and heart that come with this. But from that experience of the body doing that in the context amongst other bodies, and I know this is a way that this begins to arise for me, it's a kind of feeling that begins to arise. And from that feeling starts to become this thought or this idea I suck at this, <laughs> and everybody else is so much better than me at this meditation, and maybe I open up my eyes, and I look around, and I see all the other bodies sitting still compared to my body. I'm no good at this. Everyone's better than me. Voila, right? The arising, the, the, the less than mana. I am less than in some kind of manner. Or oppositely, you're in the meditation hall amongst other bodies and this body is so still, so serene. The body sits for a long time, a very long time as other bodies come and go out of the meditation hall and there can begin to be this feeling. I am such a good yogi. (laughs) So much better than the other bodies that aren't here maybe in the early morning when this body is here or isn't here in the late night when this body is here or stays longer. It just has this feeling that this body, this being is better than others. Again, greater than, better than. And do you hear how it's mixed with other bodies? I can see another body and have a feeling that it's better than me or less than me, just around the sitting meditation, just around the movement of a body or the lack of a movement of a body. I remember, <laughs> this happened to me at, I think over 10 years ago now, I was, I was doing a long retreat here at the Forest Refuge, and it was just a few minutes before the Dharma talk, and I was sitting, and as I was sitting, I remembered that that I'd forgotten to do something in relation to my yogi job in the kitchen. I think maybe I was uh, dinner cleanup. And it seemed I can't remember exactly what it was, but it must have been, at least for that yogi mind at the time, really important. So I had the idea that I'm going to quickly go down there and take care of it before the Dharma talk and quickly come back up. So I got out of my seat, and then I was quickly going down the, the hallway there towards the dining hall, and I was moving. I don't know if you've ever had this feeling where, where you're kind of acting like you're being mindful, but you're really not mindful. You know, you're just kind of like, <laughs> you have the act going, but <laughs> the mindfulness totally is not there. So I was trying to do my best act of being mindful and walking really quickly. And I was walking really quickly. You know, you have that bend in the hall, right, where the bulletin board is into the, as the dining hall opens. And as I was quickly going around that, right as I quickly went around that, there was Joseph Goldstein right in front of me. And I think the quickness of my body startled his body. <laughs> and I scurried on beyond him as he was making his way up to the meditation hall to give the Dharma talk. And just from that, just from the body moving quickly and the body being seen in that way, there was that feeling, right? The feeling of one being totally busted. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, I was the worst yogi in the world. And of course, maybe you've done this around teachers. It's like, I, I had the idea that Joseph seeing me, Joseph Goldstein seeing me, thought I was the worst yogi possible. You know, like, just like amazing what the mind can do and there there was the suffering from this whole comparing mind so i want to get a little bit more into the details now of this dynamic and hopefully you'll hear why i'm trying to talk about a body amongst other bodies and what happens because in some ways that's the beginning of the arising of a comparing mind at least in in some contexts and in order to situate this, I want to situate it in a particular practice that's intertwined in this willingness to be present. And it's uh, a practice that the Buddha talks about in what's called the gradual training. And that's this practice of sense restraint or guarding the senses. Or in, in one discourse, it's, it's uh, uh, talked about in terms of cultivating this, the sense faculties. And I wanna share with you a description of what sense restraint is or what it means to guard the senses, because this can be misunderstood very easily. The Buddha explains, unseen a form with the eye, a practitioner does not grasp at any sign or secondary characteristics by which, if they were to dwell without restraint over the faculty of the eye, unwholesome qualities of mind might assail them. And goes on to the other senses. On hearing a sound with the ear, they do not grasp at any sign or secondary characteristics by which, if they were to dwell without restraint, over, over hearing a sound with the ear, unwholesome, skillful, unskillful qualities of mind might assail them. And then goes on to the other uh, sense faculties, you know, tasting, touching, even cognizing. So I wanna break this apart a little bit because here we have it. It's, it's this activity of seeing something like with the eye, but not grasping on a particular aspect that's going on in the activity of seeing, not grasping onto what I'm gonna call the signs or the secondary characteristics. What I wanna point out about this, this description is that sense restraint or guarding the senses is not about trying not to see anything or not to hear anything or not to taste anything. As the Buddha says in one of his discourses, if that were the case, that means that a blind person or someone who is deaf would already be practicing sense restraint. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about what we add to our primary, our fundamental experience of hearing or seeing or tasting or touching. What gets added on to it? And when I go through this, I'm, I'm not encouraging us to change how it is sometimes good not to look around, for example, at others when we're on retreat, just kind of bringing the the eyes inward, at least when we're, we're in, a, in the group, can be really helpful. So we're not making eye contact. So there is a place for that, but... Sensory straight in its formal sense, in its traditional sense, is is different than that. So what does the the Buddha mean when he says that the practitioner does not grasp onto, does not get, you could say, hooked by what are called uh, the signs or the secondary characteristics? So this first word, sign, the Pali word is nimitta and some of you might know this word nimitta from a different practice um, around uh, states of absorption but the word is used differently in different contexts and it literally means just the sign of something for example in other discourses he'll talk about um seeing this one character potalia and potalia had the sign the characteristics of a householder so if you were to see him at first glance it would look like that he was a householder not a monastic or in another story, there's a woman who sees this monk and she realizes that this monk is the son of this certain family and, and it's because she sees the nimitta, these signs of like, she sees through, through his robes like his hands and his feet and hears his voice and she says, oh, those are the signs of, of the son of that family and I know it's the son. I can tell even though his, his head is shaved, I see it's him. So let me give uh, another example of this in terms of just being here at the Forest Refuge around the activity of seeing. So I come out of the meditation hall and I'm walking down that long hallway there. And as I'm walking down that long hallway there, I see a body moving, coming at me in the hallway. And what arises in the mind is a kind of nimitta, a sign. And it could be the sign of the just the 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 perception or the thought man woman oh, that's a man uh, that's a woman, just by seeing the body moving its shapes and features, so I want to point out that there's nothing inherently wrong with these concepts of man and woman; they can be use skillfully, but in terms of walking down the hallway here and seeing a person I have never met and I have no idea how they identify themselves, that's just my idea. I have no idea how the person identifies in terms of that, and they might not even use either of those terms. And if I were to grasp at that nimitta or get entangled with it, I might do something quite harmful. I might just be like those Brahmins who utilize a kind of system, a kind of categorization that everyone else hasn't consented to. So important sense restraint, the seeing, the thought, man, woman. It's not like I'm trying to stop the mind from saying man, woman, but I know it's just a thought and I know that that person has not consented to that thought or to that system. I'm walking down the hallway and I see a body moving down the hallway and from the activity of seeing other things can happen, not just the nimitta of man or woman, but sometimes it's like there's this whole nimitta, a whole story of the personality of the person. You ever got that where you have on retreat for a while and you see someone again and again, you've never had a conversation with them, and all of a sudden you feel like you have some sense of their personality, like this is a happy person or a sad person or a depressed person, Someone I'd like to hang out with, someone I would never want to hang out with. And all I see is just a body moving down the hallway. And if I were to grasp at that, at those signs, get entangled with them, I might do something quite harmful. And I might be perpetuating some kind of quote-unquote system, just like those Brahmins, that that other person has not consented to. And I think we can see now kind of the emerging of these quote unquote secondary characteristics as I get these initial signs, these initial concepts about what I'm seeing, hearing, even tasting or touching. And that these secondary characteristics can be conditioned by these initial signs, a kind of bias. And it happens around bodies and how we name bodies, around gender, around man, woman. This is the society that you and I most likely live in. In 2015, female full-time workers made only 80 cents for every dollar earned by men. A gender wage gap of 20%. Women on average earn less than men in virtually every single occupation for which there is sufficient earnings data for both men and women to calculate an earnings ratio. Our mind is society. And just as the Buddha said, if one person serves another person and ends up better off, uh, that is a wholesome system. But once one person serves another person and they end up worse off, that is an unwholesome system. And if I really honestly look at my mind, It would be foolish of me to think that my mind hasn't been conditioned by the society with these kinds of dynamics of better than and less than that sometimes can creep up even in a hallway here at the forest refuge. It's this relational field of a retreat. And we intellectually know this, I intellectually know this and value this, but still the heart and mind still might not deeply get it. And I feel like this is the power and the beauty of guarding the senses with mindfulness. It doesn't mean that I stop the mind from saying man, woman, but I see it, I see it for what it is. And there's the freedom not only for me, but for others around me. And there are so many other quote-unquote nimittas ways we conceptualize bodies bodies that move or still that are in the hallway or in the meditation hall or in the dining room it could be even with this body that i feel here oh this body is old that body is old this body is young that body is young and even if the thought doesn't come, sometimes there can be biases. There's so many biases in the society around age. Knowing that study after study have shown that so often in this society, the bodies of those who look older, some often can be seen as less than. At times we come across bodies that we have a response of, like they're attractive or not attractive. Some bodies feel compelling to us or not compelling. And sometimes what I notice, if there are certain bodies that are attractive or compelling to this mind, what happens is that other bodies start to become invisible start to not be seen by this mind. And it's a kind of better than or less than that happens towards this own body and other bodies that other people haven't consented to and I haven't consented to. The step out of rendering some people overly visible and other people invisible. Or step out of rendering ourselves overly visible and stepping out of ourselves being invisible. Stepping out of better than and less than simply by seeing this. Seeing this dynamic of a body amongst other bodies. It can happen around the size of bodies, large bodies or skinny bodies or tall or short bodies, and better than and less than can start to be pasted on it through this dynamic, or the color of bodies, or the ability of bodies right here at the forest refuge. just through seeing bodies or experiencing bodies amongst bodies. When iPods were auctioned on eBay, researchers randomly varied the skin color of the hand holding the iPod. A white hand holding the iPod received 21% more offers than a black hand? Will we get entangled by these nimitas, these signs? Or can we guard the sense doors to notice what the mind's, mind does? you can hear the reverberations of the mind of the comparing mind for the society and the world that we live in and what a beautiful opportunity that we have on retreat to bring a different kind of mind into such a society And it's just the seeing of it because that begins to free the mind. It opens the doorway to blending like milk and water. That there can be difference, but it blends through this this quality of kindness. And I want to point out, I'm not saying this happens all the time in the mind, and this also Is something to become curious about when it's not happening in the mind when the mind isn't hooked by less than and better than we'll get to equal to but we have to wait for equal to (laughs) i think there are times when the comparing mind is weakened or fades away and there's a different experience of what's going on around a body amongst other bodies And there's a word, the same word both in Pali and and Sanskrit, uh, tatata, usually translated as suchness or thusness. I think the the best phrase that, that holds it is, just as it is, an experience just as it is right now. Not adding anything to it conceptually, not taking anything away. The experience not getting lost in comparing. So what do I mean by this? How can we get a sense of just as it is, suchness, ta-ta-ta? So, example. So here, you might need to open your eyes, you don't have to, you can just listen to me. I have this bell in my hand. So you can see this bell, here's this bell right here. And what happens though so often when I see something is I see, it, I see it in relationship to another bell, like the bell below it. And then all of a sudden, this bell becomes a small bell, and this is a large bell. And if there was a smaller bell, let's say there's a really, really teeny, teeny bell, this all of a sudden we become a large bell compared to this very teeny bell. And so often, that's how I see the world in relation, in comparison to something else. And it looks like that, right? When I hold it up over here, it does look like such a small bell. And that one looks like a big bell. Do you see how your mind does that? You have to like, think about it, voila. And yet there's a way of seeing the bell just as it is. Just in and of itself, just that direct experience. No comparing, just this, just as it is. That's the direction towards suchness, stepping out of the comparing mind. Seeing a body just as a body. Maybe the word body doesn't even fit anymore. And there can be a freedom around that, even if it's just for a moment, seeing a tree or a squirrel or a chipmunk, just as it is. It's interesting, there's a word that is similar to this, this uh, word, uh, tatata, which is a word you probably are familiar with, tatagata a term used sometimes to refer to the Buddha. I'm very, very grateful for Richard Gombrich around this, who who connects it with this word, tatata, and says that one way of translating tathagata is it's the one who is just like this, the one resting in suchness, or you could say the one who sees suchness is a Tatagata. And not only the Buddha, but any practitioner awake. For example, the, the Buddha says, practitioners, when the gods seek a practitioner who's liberated in, in mind, they can't find anything. Because a quote-unquote tathagata is untraceable here and now. You can't grab onto them with some kind of concept that then we can compare to something else. And I think one way of understanding, one way of understanding the practice is around this. Seeing if we can just be with this moment as it is. It's a wonderful haiku from... uh, who is a Zen Buddhist monk, a well-known 20th century uh, Zen Buddhist monk who wrote Aiku. He puts it simply, he says, just as it is, the Japanese is nyose sometimes used uh, around this idea of suchness. Just as it is, it rains, I get wet, I walk. it rains, I get wet, I walk. What I find so powerful about that small haiku is what's not there. Usually when it rains, and I get wet, I'm bummed out. (laughs) It's a drag, I want my raincoat. I want a cup of hot cocoa. I don't wanna walk. Something different just to be with things as they are, especially with the internal rainstorms that sometimes can happen on retreat. Just to touch it, just as it is. This emotion, just as it is. This thought, just as it is. It rains. There's the the sadness rain. I get wet. And I walk. Just this. Just as it is. And I find when... I can begin to enter into more tasting suchness, there's a different relationship to the bodies around me and to this body itself, which is really where it begins. And one example of this, this comes from the diaries of Thomas Merton. He says in, in Louisville, At the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of of some shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. That they were mine and I theirs. That we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. And if only everybody could realize this, but it can't be explained. There is no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. Just as it is, seeing bodies walking around shining like the sun. I think this is the way the heart and mind can begin to open when we begin to see better than and less than, when we get to touch and tastes suchness. We get to have this different relationship to ourselves and others. But I left something out. that's equal to mana. (laughs) When I feel like I am equal to others. I really haven't given clear examples of this. It's the sense that we're all the same and sometimes the reason i wanted to share this is i wanted to share it after suchness because sometimes our experience of suchness is it means that everything's just the same and everybody's just the same and there's a place for that i'm not saying that that's a, a horrible thing but if i get hooked by it or entangled with it in a way that others haven't consented to it it might be harmful and it's a tricky one to understand, and you'll get this because it's so, at least in America, I wanna say, its a, it's a we have a, a, a cultural view that sometimes makes it difficult to see equal to mana in a way because there's certain values around it. And it can be good values, but they just can get out of hand. So I wanna give some examples of this. And one example comes from a colleague that I find really, she's been very helpful around these things. She's actually a cultural anthropologist, so I really appreciate her help. And she, I think a good example of um, how this equal to can start to be a bit, um, what's the word? Not in line with, with what's going on is an example she gives when she went to the airport once. And she goes to the airport and she goes to, um, I haven't experienced this, I don't drink, but she goes to a bar and um, orders a beer. And so she's, just so you know, she's in her late 60s. So she's in her late 60s, she orders a beer, and the bartender says, can I see your ID? And she says, you know what, I packed away my ID, I don't have it right now, can I just get a beer from you? I'm really, I'm over 21. (laughs) I'm flattered, but... And he says, listen, we treat everybody equally here, so I need to see your ID. (laughs) And she said, you know, I got it. That's, that's a, a value that we have, and there's a lot of benefit from that value, that we're all equal. But sometimes it's taken to an extreme. And so I want to bring this now, start to edge this into a little bit different context, of that sometimes we can feel that we're all equal in a way, and that that, that can be harmful in some kind of manner. And it's just the way the world works. So another example of this is... Um, and this comes from a book by Malcolm Gladwell called uh, *Outliers*, where he refers to these um, this research in which uh, these statistics, the statistics of a um, winning Canadian uh, hockey league team, were examined. And of course, in this book, he's really interested on, in success and what makes people um, successful whether it be at sports or anything like that. So they looked at the statistics of this one team, this winning team, to figure out what what was going on in these players that made them such great players. Was it their height? Their weight? Their home province? And you know what they found? They found it was the month that they were born in. So the hockey players who were born in January, basically January to March, were the ones that ended up being successes. And why is that? Is because if you take a group of 10-year-old boys, the ones that are born in January compared to the ones that are born in December, if they're on the same team, who's going to be better? The ones born in January. Right? And they've even shown this in in sometimes uh, school testing in some school districts because of the difference that can happen in that way, just because of where someone was born in a calendar year. So not so much because they worked harder, it's because the month they were born in that gave them success. That it's not just that we're all equal and then we work hard and then some are more successful than others. Sometimes we're born In different months. Sometimes we're born in different parts of the country. Sometimes we're born in wealthy school districts or poor school districts. Sometimes we're born with different colors of skin. And these play a role in terms of who is successful, in terms of how this works. But it's difficult to get because we think sometimes so much about everyone is equal or everyone is the same. But not everyone is consented to that. And when I think that and I assume that, I might be harming somebody. Another example of this is a little humorous. But I think also shows the importance of that sometimes when we say same sometimes we're not seeing clearly remember i I was getting my counseling degree the first day of our multicultural uh, competency course (coughs) when we were told that we're going to be starting this course (coughs) a white woman in the um course said why do we have to take this aren't we all the same and there were two women who identified as chicana women Remembering, so these are women that, that, that were really brought up and really formed in a way during the Chicano movement um, in the 1960s and 70s and really, really embraced and embodied that quality of, of ethnic, ethnic pride. And it was just to look on their faces that said it all <laughs> for the entire course. That sometimes we can get lost in sameness or equalness and overlook difference. And it can be harmful. And that's why we blend like milk and water, difference, yet at the same time, one in mind. Howard Thurman puts this well. Howard Thurman was the the spiritual advisor of Martin Luther King. And uh, he uh, established, in 1944, established the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, which was the uh, first racially integrated and intercultural church in the US. And he said, a person should know that for all human beings to be alike is the death of humankind. And important also to perceive a harmony that transcends all diversities. And at the same time in which diversity finds its richness and significance. So I feel like when we begin to see clearly just these subtle dynamics of less than or better than or equal to, that the mind, that can start to arise in the mind just by being a body amongst other bodies, there can be a freedom around that. And then we can be like the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandiya and Kambila saying, we are different in body, but one in mind. And that is how, Venerable Sir, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. So may our our practice here at the Forest Refuge lead to this kind of liberation for all beings.